it was my fifth grade year. And the way you get to the stage is you have to win your classroom first. After you win your classroom, you get to come on stage and, and, and participate in the spelling bee. And I'm Sri Lankan and I'm brown, so I had to make sure that I could spell these words. And so what happened was there was seven of us, and one of them was like my best friend, and he's also brown. So really, we both kind of winked at each other, and we knew this was our thing, right? We had, to, we had to make sure we get these words right. And so it was a lot of fun because we went back and forth. So everybody else lost, and myself and my friend we went back and forth for about 25 minutes. And it was really actually a lot of fun because the whole auditorium was there. You know, we were in fifth grade. We were at the top of the elementary school charts. And so we felt really good. And what happened was I was determined to win. So we would, every time I would spell a word, I would sit back down and, you know, my friend and I would laugh at each other. And then we would just switch back and forth until... The librarian, who was the judge, she gave me this word. And she said, the word was, ironically enough, feminine. The father of two girls. It was feminine. But she said, feminine. That's how she pronounced it. So I said, oh, yeah. And, <laughs> and I saw this on TV, so I thought I could be really smart. Can you please use that in a sentence? Had no idea what the word meant. And she said, so she used the word in the sentence, didn't help me at all. And then I said, F-I-M-I-N-I-N-E. And I thought I got it right. She said, feminine. And so I walked down. And my friend was like, no, it's wrong. So he went up there and he spelled it right. And that was it. I was so devastated. I was so upset. And as a consolation prize, they said, if your friend doesn't make the event, the next round, which would be in the city of Pasadena, if he doesn't, if he can't make it, if he's sick, you're the guy. And I, and I remember what I said. I was like, what do you mean? He's never sick. He's going to be there. I was really upset. And so what happened was they, they said, you're an alternate. So we'll call you a placeholder. You'll be a placeholder in case your friend can't make it. So they said, both of you guys should study together. But I said, why should I study? I have no reason to uh, study as a placeholder because I know my friend is going to attend the next round spelling bee. And, and of course, we both studied together. But the way that I actually studied was not impressive. I didn't care at all because I knew that I was not going to be the one that represented the school. And so as a placeholder, the way that you relate to things is significantly different from if you are the actual person. If you're an alternate in life, you don't really take your life that seriously. But if you are the chosen one, you take things more seriously. And today, what I want to talk about is the difference between faith, real faith, and a placeholder type of faith. A placeholder, okay? Remember that word. And I want to begin by looking at Luke chapter 17, just two verses. Luke 17, verses 5 and 6. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. The Lord replied, 
If you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. I'm going to read that one more time. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. The Lord replied, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. See, the disciples are asking for their faith to be increased. So that's with the assumption that they had faith at all, right? But Jesus' response is interesting. He said, well, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, that's sufficient. And I thought that was a really odd response to a desire of the disciples to increase their faith, the amount of faith. But Jesus says, all you need is this much, literally, this much of faith. And so I realize that in our life, what we tend to do is when we, when we don't feel like we're experiencing faith, we ask God to increase our faith. But Jesus says, you just actually need this much. And so it's not, an, it's not actually an issue of an increase of the amount of faith you necessarily have. But it could be what we're actually calling faith. And the question I have to you today is, do you even have faith to increase The assumption as Christians is we just need more faith. But my question to you is, do you even have faith to begin with? That's a whole different question. And I would venture to say that some of you who've walked with God for a long time, you naturally assume that in every aspect of your life, you have faith. Well, because you're Christian. So naturally, when I'm thinking about the next business I'm going to start, or my friendships, or my employment, or my children, or my friendships, or relationships, or romantic relationships, or whatever, you naturally assume that you're operating in faith. And so when there's an area that's wrong or that's dry, your prayer will be, God, just give me more faith. Maybe God is saying, how about you ask for faith? How about you just ask for faith? See, it's in our humanity to think that more of something is actually going to result in a, it's actually going to give you a better result, right? When I was in college, I started to learn how to cook, and I was actually pretty good most of the time. You know, like you're a really good cook, except for the times that you're not. And then you're a terrible cook. Just depends on what you make. And I remember anytime something didn't taste right as I was cooking it, because we would cook it for our whole uh, apartment. Every day we each had turns. I would just add, <laughs> I would just add cayenne pepper to it. <laughs> and what I didn't realize was happening is the dish was more spicy and it tasted even more terrible. Adding more salt, pepper to something that's not good is not going to make it better. And it's in our humanity that we think that we just add things and it's going to make us more. Same thing with music. You know, I work, I'm, I work with a lot of artists and sometimes when music, other, other artists want me to hear a song, they'll invite me to the studio. This happened a few weeks ago, actually. I went to the studio. They're like, check this out. And they, they, they turn on the, music, the song, and I'm listening to it. And they think that if they turn it louder, it's going to make me really like it. And it actually makes me really hate it. And, that, like, you know, if you hear a song on the radio 
and you hear it all the time, and then you're like, this song is so annoying. And then you go to this big event. Maybe you go to a club or, or, or an event where the speakers are big, and then you hear it. You actually think the song is good, right, a little bit? You kind of get into it a little bit. It's not. It's not better. The song didn't get better. It just, it's just because we turned up the volume. And that's why, that's why it sounds better. See, in our humanity, we think by adding to something, it's going to make it more pure. It doesn't. And so today, I want to say to you that Jesus is after a type of faith. Does our faith grow? Of course our faith grows. Our faith grows. It can start really small, and it can grow. But we're not talking about that today. We're talking about, is your faith there? Does it even exist before you can ask the question, can my faith grow? When you are dealing with a certain area of lack or depravity in your soul, maybe the question that we should be asking is, Holy Spirit, what is the type of faith you want me to have? What, is, what, are, what, is the, what does faith actually mean? What is the purity of faith that you're asking for that you require of me versus can you just give me more of what I think I have? And I think the thing that I call placeholders today, that we're going to call placeholders, this placeholder of faith, it's what I, what, what I would also suggest is obligatory faith. You have an obligation to believe, right? So, for example, when I became a dad... I had an obligation to believe for my children. I had an obligation. When I became a spouse, I had an obligation to, to believe for my wife. It's an obligatory faith. When I started a new job, I, have an ob- I just put a placeholder. Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian, so I should have faith for this. I should have faith for you. I should have faith for me. And I want to call these places obligatory faith, a placeholder faith. You just think you have to believe, so you assume that faith has already come. And I want to say to you that you can actually be very faithful in one space in your life. You can have a lot of faith for one, two, three, even five things in your life, and that sixth and seventh and eighth place could be faithless. Just because you are a person of faith in general doesn't mean that every place in your life has faith. Other places could be faithless, or what we're going to call today is just placeholders. You have a placeholder of faith because you know that you're supposed to have faith, but you never asked for faith there in the first place. You guys know what I'm saying? Does it make sense? Placeholders. And we want to we wanna replace these obligatory places of faith with actual faith. Some of us may be asking God in one of the driest areas of our life, Holy Spirit, just give, just give me, increase my faith. But Jesus says, what? All you need is this much. So let's get into that a little bit. So the first thing we have to do is we just have to ask for God to come dwell in the place that we have nothing in. Instead of trying to, instead of trying to talk it up, instead of trying to uh, make up words for it, instead of talking to our friends about it, you just have to say, God, in this, in these places in my life, or in this one place in my life, I don't have faith. 
I know I'm supposed to, and I want to improve, and I want to increase, but would you just give me something to start with? So that's the first thing we want to do. See, here's the way you can determine, here's one of the ways you can determine whether you have faith in an area or not, okay? When you are obsessed with the outcome, when you are obsessed with the result, say you're praying for something, you're praying for something, and you're constantly looking to see if that thing happened or not, I want to suggest to you that you might have to ask for faith in that place. You might actually not have faith. You might have an obligation for faith because this is what real faith does. Real faith is thrilled with the giver. And so when you have faith in God, you have faith in God. You don't actually have faith in an outcome. You just have faith in God. It's just God. Wherever you look, it's a three-dimensional, multi-dimensional godness that surrounds you. So when you pray, it's more of God that fills you up with the faith. You're not always just looking for the outcome. And outcomes are important, obviously, because it's what tells us if our faith is working. But I want to say to you today that if there's an area in your life where you feel constantly disappointed, I want to say look to the giver of faith, the one who the one who will compensate for even the thing that you are not getting or even the thing that's not working out. When you can enter into that space, then you can ask, increase my faith. And it's a lot easier said than done because disappointment can be very bitter and disappointment can do a work on our soul over and over and over again. But today God is doing something because he's here and miracles will happen. The, the Old Testament actually doesn't even use the, faith, the word faith that often. You know, like in Hebrews, there's the Hall of Fame of Faith. Abraham, Enoch, you know, Noah, all these people. Talks about what lives of faith they led. Barak, Gideon, all these people. But if you look at the Old Testament in the actual stories, it doesn't say that they... It doesn't use the word faith, right? It just says that they what? Obeyed God. They obeyed God. Faith is kind of the interpretation of what we say in the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, it doesn't really, it doesn't really talk much about faith. It's, faith is actually works. It's just what they're doing. That's faith. And so we're going to talk about one of those characters today. But we know, because we've been at VCF for so long, that in order to have faith and not just a placeholder, you have to be open to the voice of God, right? And faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes through the word of God. And it's not just hearing, but it's obeying and doing. This is faith. Faith is not just listening, but it's actually acting upon. So really quickly, as fast as I can, I just want to give you a little bit of theology around, because this is going to be very important for us, a little bit of theology around the difference between the law and works. See, in the evangelical church, especially in America, we always use this. We say, well, it's nothing you earned. It's nothing you earned. Righteousness, righteousness through grace alone. 
right? Faith, faith, faith is nothing you earn. Faith is just, it just comes. You don't have to do anything. And what it does is it gives this very casual approach to our relationship with God because it assumes that you don't have to do anything. It assumes that you just, you just sit very passively. And it is true. We are justified by faith alone. But, and, we're, and it's apart from the law. Okay, apart from the law. But let's look at what the law actually is. The law doesn't mean you don't have to do anything that's righteous. That's not the law. The law doesn't mean you get to just sit and do nothing and then God does everything and you just sit. That's not what we talk, that's not what Paul talks about when he talks about the law. This is very important for us to know. Some of you may have never heard this before. So I'm just going to go over it really quick. Few verses, Romans three twenty three twenty three. So I'm gonna be in Romans for a little bit. I'll go from Romans three and skip to Romans four. So Romans three twenty three for there is no distinction, since all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And 24, they are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Amen. So that means that we are justified by grace and we can't earn it. Okay? Look at 26 to 30. He did this to show his righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over the sins previously committed. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. Okay? So the one who has faith in Jesus is justified. Now now read on. Then what becomes of boasting? It is excluded. By what law? By that of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that a person is justified by faith apart from works prescribed by the law. Or is, it, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, and he will justify the circumcised on the ground of faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. So what, is, what it's saying is this. The law originally said that you had to be circumcised, that you had to, that you had to follow certain mosaic laws in order to be a person of God, that you had to basically be Jewish in order to, in order to enter into the promises of God. That's the law. That's what the law means. Okay. The law doesn't mean good works. Good works we're supposed to do. We're actually supposed to do good works. The law, when Paul says we're separated from the law, we're no longer under the law, that means you don't have to become Jewish to experience God. Because when Jesus came as a sacrifice, he opened a portal to the entire Gentile world. That's the law. That's what we're talking about, okay? Now, we tend to think of being free from the law as being free from everything. And that grace just pardons us from all these responsibilities, That's what we kind of tend to have believed. So when the Bible says we're made righteous by Jesus alone and our faith in him is sufficient, it's true. But we still have to do stuff. (laughs) 
We're not free from responsibility. We still have to listen to the voice of God. We still have to move with the spirit to grow in the inner righteousness, in inner righteousness, right? Look at Romans 4, verse 9. Is this blessedness then pronounced only on the circumcised or also on the uncircumcised? We say faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it reckoned to him? Was it before or after he had become circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the ancestor of all who believe without being circumcised and who thus have righteousness reckoned to them. Okay? So it's the Bible saying that it wasn't about his circumcision or, or these certain marks of righteousness. His faith, despite all of that, is what made him righteous. And finally, I know this is, this is more heady than we're used to. But Romans 4, verses 16 to 22. I'm going to read the whole thing. It's worth us listening to. For this reason, it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his descendants, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham. For he is the father of all of us, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom, who, in, in whom he believed who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Hoping against hope, he believed that he would become the father of many nations, according to what was said, so numerous shall your descendants be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was already as good as dead, for he was about a 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver. This is very important, verse 20. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Therefore, his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. It was all about what God had promised him. See, Abraham's faith... It's seen in his obedience to God, even when he considered how ridiculous the promise would be. His body was old, the barrenness of Sarah's womb. And verse 20, no distrust made him waver. So he was fully engaged in what God was doing, right? And he put, it, put his trust in God alone, not the thing that he was hoping for. See, he didn't put his trust in his wife's womb. He didn't actually put his trust there. He put his trust in God. So every time he was disappointed, God. Every time he felt, he felt like this would never happen, God. This is, the type, this is the type of faith versus placeholder faith. Placeholder faith keeps looking at data, keeps looking and obsessing over what's going to happen. Faith that God wants, the, the faith that can move mountains, pure faith is God. Everything but God, but God. And I wonder how many of us today 
need to experience the type of faith where you're almost not connected to the thing that you need or want or praying for, but you need more of God. You need to turn, you need to find your fullness in God. Faith is expressed in obedience. Faith is expressed in obedience. A pure faith, even if it's the size of a mustard seed. And from Romans, I'd like to finish this thought in the book of James, verse 2. And we're going to read James chapter 2, verses 14 to 24. All 10 verses. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say that you have faith but do not have works? Can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I by my works will show you my faith. See, that's how serious works are. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Even the demons demons believe. Do you want to be shown, you senseless person, that faith apart from works is barren? Was not our ancestor Abraham justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was brought to completion by the works. Thus the scripture was fulfilled and says, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness and he was called the friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. This is huge. Maybe we take this for granted, but this is huge. See, works as defined by James is what makes faith complete and alive, right? These are not the works of the law. Two different things. The works of the law is what Paul talks about, which are things that make you justified that are not real, actually. Those are just markers, but those are not real. See, these are works of love that come out of faith. You have faith, and then you respond to it, and then your faith grows. But a lot of us might, cons- might have faith I- I- in the sense that, We have a belief or faith from God, but we don't experience the strength to strength or the moving of mountains because we don't we don't go faith works, then more faith than works. We don't know how that works yet. We just wait for faith to come in the traditional sense and we don't move forward. And so we're not actually growing in our faith. It's probably good that you have your masks on. Because you don't look very happy. Faith without works is dead. That means it's not faith. I don't know how else to say it. It's just not faith. See, people will tell me all the time, yeah, I got this idea for, for, for starting this, this organization or business. Four years later, they still have the same idea. That's weird to me. 
how. And, and, and they're struggling. It's because what, what did you do about it? What did you actually do? You know, I'm having, I, 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 God is giving me this faith to uh, uh, pursue reconciliation with this person. And five years later, they're in the same exact place. What did you do about the word to reconcile with your brother or sister? What did you do? Did you invite them over to your house? Did you call them? Did you text them? You did nothing. So you don't have faith. Faith and works go hand in hand. I can tell. I can tell when someone is moving in faith. You can tell. There's a polish on everything they do or that particular thing that they do. It means that they're willing to get dirty. They're willing to get in to the difficulty of the situation and act along with their faith. Right? You can't tell me that you have faith to marry the person of your dreams and then keep dating somebody every other week. That's not faith. That's not faith. You can't say that you're waiting for God to give you the best possible spouse and then every three months you have someone more mediocre than the previous three months. That's not faith. Back it up. Back it up with your actions. You want to serve the poor, start somewhere. Start with one person. Don't talk to me about scripture. Don't talk to me about your dreams. Don't talk about what you're going to start. Feed one person. Faith and works go hand in hand. I got artists that still talk to me about their album. It's been 12 years. It's been 12 years, but they're so arrogant because they want to perfect something and they don't want to put something out. It's been 12 years. Where's your faith? Where's the dream, the seed that God gave you? Prove it. Bible says, show me, show me your works. Then, I'll show, then, then you can see my faith. Prove it with what you do, not with what you say. How can God give you more faith if you're not moving in what he already told you? How? Just from a practical reason, be reasonable. <laughs> be reasonable. How am I going to trust Simone with walking down the street when she can't even walk to the kitchen and not get in trouble? Be reasonable, Simone. Sorry, this is my internal, internal dialogue coming up. <laughs> Remember, Good works are not the law. And we are also not saved by good works either. Don't get me wrong. We are not saved by good works. So you could do all these works in the world. That's not going to save you. It's faith in Jesus alone. I just want to say that good works are different from the law. The thing that we learned today in James is different from what we see in Romans. Faith, works is actually the completion of faith. It's the completion of faith. Just yesterday, um, I, I led a workshop. It, it's kind of a, a, a vir- with my other job, it's a virtual, it's like a virtual missions trip with Kenya, with, in the Turkana area in Kenya. And so we have partners on the ground in Kenya that are, that are doing a huge water projects with World Vision. And so uh, there was a group of 15 people that are engaging with, with 
they were supposed to go actually, but they couldn't because of COVID. And so we just decided let's do something virtually. And in this training, we are teaching people that missions is not about just going abroad. Because if you don't have anything to offer, nobody really wants you abroad. I mean, like, don't come if you don't have, if, if, yeah, like, don't waste people's money. Don't, don't fundraise if you don't have anything to offer. It's really the way I see it. It's not in the Bible. It's just my opinion. And so, so what we're doing is we're training people to have something to offer, right? And this could be spiritually. It could even be financially. It could be emotionally. It could be in holistically in all sorts of ways. And so, in, so, so for two of the hours, we said we're going to stop thinking about Kenya. We're going to start thinking about our own backyard. And so we have this partnership with the Hoving Home, which is an amazing place. If you guys have heard it, they, they basically help restore women stuck in abuse, addiction. And it's actually right here in Pasadena. And so we, we did this exercise where we walked a mile to the Hoving Home. And the exercise was this. During the walk to the Hoving Home, you can't talk, okay, this group of 15 people. You can't talk, but you can pray. If you pray in the Spirit, pray in the Spirit, or just be in silence, meditate upon the goodness of God. Have God tell you something about what you're about to experience at the Hoving Home. And I said, look, if you make mistakes, it's completely okay. It's completely fine. But what we're going to do is, in faith, we're going to listen, and then we're going to act, That's all I know how to do. I don't know much more else, but you're going to listen, and you're going to act, and it's a safe space. And if you're not sure, you know, you can ask me, talk to me first if you're not sure. Otherwise, be free. Okay, those were the rules. So all 15 of us walked, and they were all silent. And then the time at the Hoving Home was so powerful. Learned about uh, what they're doing. Learned about some of the women's testimonies. And they gave us a tour of the building. I mean, it's incredible. Look them up, really. It's an incredible ministry. And at the end, there there was this guy, and I could tell he was very nervous the whole time. And I didn't know why he was nervous. There's nothing to be nervous about. And and, and at the end, he was like, Rajiv, I have something. You know, I don't know. I have something. I said, go for it. I don't know what he had. (laughs) I said, go for it. He said, um... Right when we were about to leave, saying bye to everyone, he says, I'm sorry. He went to the director. He said, I'm sorry. Um, I, I keep seeing, for the last one hour, I keep seeing an ankle with a, with a brace on it. And she said, uh, praise God, but I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and, and then he saw this, and he, and he said, I see a pink shoe with it. And there was this girl on the couch, and she had pink shoes on. So... He led, and we all follow. And he said, "Excuse me, do you have? I saw a pink shoe, and I saw an ankle brace. Do you have? A, do you have an issue with your ankle?" And she said, "No, I'm fine. I'm completely fine." Then someone overheard us, and ran to us and said, "Did you say ankle? There's someone right there. Uh, one of the women who was actually with her daughters. She has an ankle brace on, and she has pink socks or whatever, something." So they ran to get her. She li- she limped back. By the way, and the group of fifteen people they don't they're not used to operating like this. So they had never really seen anything like this before. And here's this woman that comes with her daughter, and her daughter was there only for one day. 
to, they get visitation like once every three months or something like that. And the daughter was there and the woman was there. And she just, the fact that she was called out, she just started weeping. And we all laid hands on her and she had a wrap. She took the wrap off. We prayed with what I would consider very little faith because it was, it was even hard for me because I was trying to teach this group in real time and what, what, what I would consider very little faith. But the faith was pure that this guy had because he didn't know what he was doing, actually. But he was, it was pure, and he was just going by what he heard and what he believed that God could do. That's all he had. It was just pure. It wasn't more faith. It was just faith. Not this big, crazy thing. It was just faith. And we laid our hands on her, and the swelling just went like this in real time. And she started jumping up and down and crying and hugging her daughter. Because this guy... This guy was obedient to what he heard, and then he just did it. And I asked him, and during the debrief time, I said, what would have happened if nobody was there? What would have happened if nobody had an ankle issue and you just blurted something out? And he's like, I don't know, but I don't think like that anymore. And, and, and so what I want to suggest to you is stop, get out of your mind And stop thinking about what could happen if you act on your faith. The worst that's going to happen is you're going to be wrong. And then we're just going to go eat lunch. Like, it's not a big deal. Even if you start, if you want to start a new venture, the worst that's going to happen is that you were wrong. And maybe you might have lost a little bit of money. I don't know about that. That happens too. But the more you practice, the more that the Holy Spirit opens you up to things like that. And it doesn't just have to be healing, but it could be in relationships. It could be calling somebody. That person might be lonely. It could be little things. It could be talking to your coworker about God. The antithesis of faith seems sometimes not to be doubt. But the antithesis of faith could be actually wickedness. Do you remember when Jesus said, you faithless and wicked generation? In fact, it was, this, it was in the same context of if you have faith uh, as small as a mustard seed, you don't have to turn to it. Let me just quickly look at it. Sorry for bouncing, but I'm building my case. Jesus answered, This is from Matthew 17, verses 17 to 20. Jesus answered, you faithless and perverse generation, how much longer must I be with you? How much longer must I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was cured instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith. For truly I tell you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Faithless and wicked. See, it's hard for me to believe or imagine that you could be full of faith and wicked at the same time. That just doesn't even sound right, right? But faithless and wicked kind of go hand in hand together. 
but it's very rare that you would see someone full of faith and impure. Of course, we're all imperfect. But what I'm saying is faithless and the antithesis of faith seems to be wicked, impure, right? And so the next thing I would suggest about faith is that faith has to coexist with hope and love. See, I, I know people of faith, but you wouldn't look at them and say, oh, they're so full of faith. You'd actually say they're so full of love. And they're so full of hope, and they're so full of grace, and they're so full of charity, and goodness, and kindness, and joy. And so when you look at that, faith arises in that context. See, things of faith happen to good people. People who put others above themselves are generally people who operate in faith. And so this is a very underrated aspect about faith, because we all want the wow of, of, of faith giftings or, or things happening, you know, in the spirit. But really the underlying, underlying root of all of that is love and is being a person full of God's kindness. So miracles happen when there's faith, hope, and love all together. Even the guy yesterday I was talking about, he was just, even before that, all that happened, I was so drawn to him because he was so kind. He was such a loving person. He, he would, when, when you talk to him, he's not, he, he's listening like he's taking notes. Like he wants to engage. He wants to be present. This is, these are components of people with great faith. People with great faith aren't just these obnoxious, charismatic people. They're actually people who, are, who, are, who love God and have God's love in them. So I just want to say to you today that faith grows and faith comes when you're in the context of a love relationship with God and people. When you love people a lot and when you love God a lot, faith will come and it will come quickly and it will grow as well. And I'm going to wrap it up by talking about an understated person in the Bible named Deborah, or in Sri Lanka they say Deborah. But it's in Judges 4 and 5, and we don't have time to look over the story, so you, you guys read it this week, Judges chapters 4 and 5. And I'm just going to summarize it as best as I, I can. Okay, so in Hebrews 11, it talks about all these people of faith. It talks about Barak who is actually the commander of the army in the story of Deborah. And there's always a question of why they didn't add Deborah in there. But anyway, that's for another day. Deborah is a judge and prophetess, and the only one who's both is is Samuel. So it's a big deal. She's in great company. She's a judge. She's a boss. She's a judge, and she's a prophetess. She had, that means she had discernment and she heard the voice of God. She had both. And at the time of her position as a judge, the Israelites were being oppressed by King, um, what's his name? Jabin, Jabin of Canaan. And, and his commander of his army was Sesera. Okay? So the Israelites had been oppressed for about 20 years. 
And so what Deborah does is when the people come to her, she appoints Barak to command the army and bring 10,000 troops to destroy Sisera's chariots, 900 chariots. And while Sisera flees, so his chariot, so it works, Sisera's army dies, and then he flees, and then he goes into a tent by another woman, and it says a homemaker by the name of Jael, and she actually ends up killing him. So two women are the heroes of this story. See, Deborah is a warrior. She's a prophetess. She hears God. She's a leader, and she inspires everyone around her. The story is in Judges 4. What I want to look at is a few verses in Judges 5, because after the story, she kind of, she composes a song of sorts in in Judges chapter 5. And look what she says. This jumped out to me. Verse, Verse 6 on. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, and in the days of Jael, People avoided the main roads, and travelers stayed on winding pathways. There were few people left in the villages of Israel until Deborah arose as a mother for Israel. When Israel chose new gods, war erupted at the city gates, yet not a shield or spear could be seen among 40,000 warriors in Israel. All of them were cowards, all of them. My heart is with the, and then she says, verse 9, my heart is with the commanders of Israel, with those who volunteered for war. See, I said, God, why is, why is this woman so great? Why does she have so much faith? And of all the things that she could have called herself, a warrior, commander in chief, a prophet, leader, she uses in verse not eight, I believe. She calls herself a mother. She calls herself a mother. And actually, when I read up about her, it's not known if she is a mother of biological children, or maybe she was. It wasn't even known if she was married, or she took on the heart of a mother. And the one thing that I've realized in my life is you don't mess with the mom. You don't mess with a woman who cares for the people entrusted to her, whether that be her children or whether that be anybody that she loves. Because the love of a mother is so aggressive that it will eat you up. And all the mothers say yes. See, because mothers, when nobody wants to step up, a mother will step up. When a mother wakes up and when she goes to sleep, she doesn't think about herself. When somebody who has a maternal heart exists, they literally don't think about themselves ever, ever. It no longer, and I'm talking about if you're a good one, you can also be a bad one. You can also be a bad father. You can also be a good father. I'm talking about the good ones right now. But a mother in the truest form does not think of themselves. And when nobody wanted to fight, thousands of people in Israel, she rose up. She rose up. She came up. So it doesn't say the word faith. It doesn't talk about her faith here. But what that, what that sh- says to me is this. 
when you have love and when you are pure, faith comes and it's normal and it's natural. See, faith survives and grows in the context of love. And some of you have roles in your life where you're completely selfless and you're always giving and you're always thinking about everybody else, fathers, mothers, caretakers, even your professions, that's what you do. I want to encourage you and say to you that God is using that to stir up faith in you. Because in that role that you have been given, faith is already there. It will arise. That's what you do. Even when you don't think about it, that's what you do. It's, you're not a placeholder. You don't have placeholders for faith. You actually have faith. And it's arising in you today. Of all the things that she called herself, she said, I, I, see, I would have been like warrior. <laughs> I would have been like commander. I would have been king. She says mother. She said that is the motivation and the identity that I carry as a leader. And it's spilt out to save her whole nation. It's spilt out. That's what faith does. It spills out of your substance, and you know how to move. You know where to go. So maybe you don't know how to conjure up faith today. But maybe you know how to be a mother. Maybe you know how to be a father. Maybe you know how to be a sister. Maybe you know how to be a really good friend. And allow God for all those placeholders in your life that you don't have faith in. Don't worry about it. Just say, God, I'll step in to this moment. I'll step in right now with knowing nothing. I'll step in. And I pray, Lord, that you would use me and give me faith. I don't have faith. Give me faith. Think about all the areas in your life today that you have assumed that you've had faith. And take that placeholder and say, placeholder, no more. Holy Spirit, I want faith. Forget the question of do I have more faith, little faith, medium faith. Guess what? I love how you guys think that you know if you have a lot of faith or a little faith. I love how we think that's the question that we should ask. How will we even know? When will you know? Can somebody tell me if you have a lot of faith? Because I'll take your lot of faith and show you that it's actually not that much faith. Or I'll take your little faith and show you that it's actually a lot of faith. Stop asking the question, how much faith do you have? And start asking the question, what type of faith do I have? Is it pure? Does it look at outcomes or does it look at God? And is it in the space where love, hope, and faith can coexist? And finally, we spoke about Hebrews. And I just want to go back there really quick and highlight two verses and then we're done. Hebrews 11 Verses 15 to 16. So he was talking about people of faith. If they had been thinking of the land that they had left behind, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Indeed, he has prepared a city for them. We are in a new world right now, and we are in a new season. And COVID has transformed the way that we engage, right? It's not a secret. There's less people here today. 
I can't even see your full face. It's a weird world right now. But I think the tendency is for Christians right now is to look back at 2018, you know, the good old days, two years ago, 2018, 2019, and say, oh, I wish things looked like that. I long for the time when. I long for the time when. And I do appreciate looking at the past and looking at it with fondness. The past is good. But what is terrible What is terrible is to long for the past to be replicated right now and into the future. Some of you are not experiencing faith because you long for what you left behind. You long for the past in a way that's not out of remembrance or gratitude, but you long for the past in a way that can't move you forward into the future. If you are looking back, honestly, me and Lydia sometimes were like, remember when we didn't have kids? (laughs) We definitely do that sometimes. We love our kids, but, you know, (laughs) you know. And so I realize that even when I do that, I no longer say that. That's not in my vocabulary anymore because we got kids, thank God, and we're living in that space and we're moving to the future. I'm not going to think about when I was younger. That's a waste of time. And for us, we can't think about 2019 when everything was all good with no COVID. We have to think, we, faith can only arise when you don't long for what was already done, but you long for what's coming. And that's where faith arises. So, in the placeholders that you have, very practically, in the placeholders that you have, stop longing for a paradigm that's in the past. Stop longing for people or things that don't exist. That's probably why it's a placeholder and not faith. Because you're trying to compare it with other people. Guess what? Comparison is like looking in back. It's the same thing. When you try to compare your situation and your story with somebody else, it's the same thing as looking in the past. That's why comparison is garbage. Comparison is terrible. Longing for the past to return, it's not going to happen. You won't have faith. You'll just have replicas of the same thing. Okay, that's one. God is doing a new thing. The second thing, and finally, in verses 39 to 40. Yet all these, so all these people, men and women of faith, though they were commended for their faith, did not receive what was promised. (laughs) Since God had provided something better so that they would not, apart from us, be made perfect because the things that God is giving faith for you in today are for the purposes of others and the future and of what's happening next. It's not about you necessarily. It's about what's coming. And so this is how you can, this is the maturation of a Christian where you can have a faith that watches for outcomes. You should. You should watch for what actually happens. We should look at if the woman's ankle was healed yesterday or not. But that is more concerned with the face of God. Because in heaven, you probably won't need faith anymore. Right? Faith is for the things that you can't see. And when you're gone and no longer in this earth, you probably won't have to use your faith anymore. And that is why love is forever. 
Because when you love people and when you love God, it is a pathway to eternity, and that love never ends, ever. Ever.